Welcome to the podcast that puts a finger on the pulse of medicine and technology. On this show, you'll hear from investors, industry executives, and healthcare providers on the science and business of medicine. I'm your host, Omar M. Khatib, and this is the State of MedTech. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. We got another great episode today. And if you're a clinician, uh, please make sure that you take advantage of this episode and claim your CME credit. That's right. You can unlock an AMA PRA category one credit by just listening to this episode and then clicking the link in the notes below. And then you go and just write a few sentences and reflect and you get your uh, credit that way. That's courtesy of our fantastic partners over at CMFI who provide that CME experience. Now, who's our guest today? Our guest is Dr. Don Buford. He's the founder of the Texas Orthobiologic Center and is also a board certified sports medicine orthopedic surgeon and specializes in shoulder and knee uh, orthopedic surgery and orthope- uh, orthobiologic therapy, which includes PRP and bone marrow concentration of stem cells. Now, I noticed him because the world of biologics is uh, very exciting, uh, very uh, interesting, but unfortunately full of a lot of controversy because um, you essentially are providing a uh, treatment to patients um, uh, where the substances are, that, are, that are used by orthopedic surgeons, they help injuries heal faster. Right, they they they're used to improve the healing of broken bones and injured muscles, tendons, and ligaments. So of course, many people want it. So these products are often made from substances that are naturally found in your body. The p- controversy, though, is that there's a lot of uh, uh, misleading marketing. There's a lot of bad claims, right? And so there's a, this 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 very exciting industry is actually full of a lot of controversy. And nobody was really talking much about it except Don Buford, who I've been following for a year now. Um, actually was writing a lot. Um, and so on LinkedIn, you can follow him and his posts are fantastic. So if you follow hashtag orthobiologics or hashtag biologics, you'll see that he posts a lot of great content. Like, uh, for example, I'm looking at one of his posts right now, which is talking about how not all PRP is created the same. So aside from uh, patients, this is great information for clinicians because if you're a clinician and you're not in the biologic space and your patient asks about this, right, it's really important to know. Uh, to know the uh, the differences. And so he covers a lot of the controversy behind it, the misleading claims, and really you know, pulls back the curtain on the ugly truth behind the world of biologics. Plus, he covers a lot of great, uh, we covered some other areas uh, that are very interesting. This episode was actually recorded uh, many months ago. I've been behind on my, my publishing schedule. Um, and so, uh, sound quality is pretty good. Um, but again, this is right when I was getting started with the podcast. So Please don't mind the sound quality. I don't have. I didn't have the great uh, microphone that I do today. And then, lastly, um, you know, if you're a, a salesperson in the med tech biotech space, here's a great idea for you. Listen to this episode, and with that next surgeon that you're trying to prospect with, send them a message and say, "Hey, Doctor So and So, you know, not sure if you use it in your practice, but here's a really interesting episode on biologics, which you can also get a CME credit by reflecting on." Um, through your uh, submission. So you have free content that you can use to establish a great relationship with your surgeon. And if you want to learn more about how to use digital to actually sell at scale and persuade at scale in a meaningful way with hospital administrators and physicians, uh, check the notes below or go to my uh, LinkedIn profile. I have a free webinar you can watch, which is going to teach you how I was able to put 35 deals within 60 days when I was uh, in my last medical device company and how I did that without even stepping foot in the hospital all through social media. That's right. So check that webinar training out. I think you'll love it. So that being said, here's the episode with Dr. Don Buford. Enjoy and be sure to give us five stars and a quick review. We really appreciate it. All right, everybody. Here's the show. Enjoy. And we are on. So, hey, everyone, Omar M. Khatib, your head of state and the host of this amazing podcast with another great guest, somebody that uh, I've been following on LinkedIn for over a year. Uh, I've learned more than I've ever learned in my life, including in medical school, no offense to my professors back then, about biologics, about orthopedics. Um, and that's Dr. Don Buford, who's joining us from the great 
emphasis on the great state of Texas, because I too am a Texan. I'm just transplanted right now in California. So Dr. Beaver, so thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. And I appreciate the opportunity to be on this, uh, on this show. And like you said, I'm from the great state of Texas, uh, originally from California. We still have a little work to do in Texas, as you probably know, if you follow the news, but, uh, but we're getting there. <laughs> Fantastic. So Dr. Buford, um, a little bit about yourself, like for the audience that's just getting to know you now, tell, tell us a little bit about yourself. Like what's your origin story? How'd you get into orthopedics? How'd you end up in Texas? Wow. So, um, the, I, I was one of the rare, um, people entering medical school where I already knew really from my junior or really early in my senior year in high school, not only that I wanted to be a doctor, but that I specifically wanted to be a sports medicine orthopedic surgeon. Um, and that came about because I, I was uh, at a small private high school in uh, North Hollywood, California, and had a chance to meet some up and coming sports medicine doctors that, you know, in hindsight, were all brilliant educators and, and leaders of the specialty and founders of mm -hmm. many of the organizations that, that, we, that we all you know, know well now, I just had a chance to be exposed at an early age to, to that kind of energy and that kind of um, uh, genius. And so I went into college knowing I wanted to be a sports medicine orthopedic surgeon, which made college hard. Then I went into you know, medical school knowing I wanted to be a surgeon. Then I went into residency knowing I wanted, you know, I, I, I had my path goal, um, my endpoint in mind. Um, and so that was the medicine side of things. My other dream was to play professional baseball. And that dream, really, yeah. And that dream came about because my father played for 10 years in the big leagues with the White Sox and with the Baltimore Orioles. Um, same name. So I'm a junior and um, I'm the oldest of three boys. And so so I, I really I took baseball as far as I could. I made it up through double A uh, with a, maybe a cup of coffee on the triple A team and maybe one split level spring training game with the big league squad. <laughs> But I, I played a couple years in AA with the Orioles, played a total of four years. And um, the, the trick of that back then was, you know, there was no Internet back then. And uh, I was in medical school at the same time. So Fantastic. So that's, I, yeah, so I got, yeah, that's pretty impressive, actually. Yeah, so I got a year and a half of medical school in, in between taking some years off to continue to try and advance and chase dream number one. Um, which was baseball. And I finally decided to go back to medical school full time and, and graduated from UCLA and haven't really looked back. But, um, but, you know, so that makes me the black sheep of my family because my youngest brother played for eight years in the bigs. So, so that's, you know, we've got more people that played pro ball than, than doing this doctor stuff. But, um, but that explains my interest in sports too. I've always been athletic, always been interested in how the body heals and works and trying to keep people doing what they love to do. Um, so fantastic. Trained here in Dallas at Southwestern University, UT Southwestern. Did my orthopedic residency. Great place. Yeah, Great fantastic place. facility. Um, it's a it's a county program, and as night fighting club on the weekend, as my dad likes. To yeah, say, right? exactly right. So, as an orthopedic <laughs> guy, you get a ton of experience on the weekends, and when it's a county facility, nobody's trying to hoard cases. There's plenty to go around. Um, and I just wanted to operate a bunch. And so I came here, loved it, uh, went back and did a sports fellowship back with my, my mentor back in, in L.A. And then I've been out here ever since, since 2000. Fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. And sorry for looking down. You know, we are actually live on LinkedIn. People are signing in, which is great. And I see that number going. I love when, when, when it goes live, I start seeing that number tick up. Yeah. So I tagged you. You can reshare it later if you want. Oh, yeah. If you uh, tag me, great. great. Yeah, totally. Totally. So, you know. You have a very interesting practice, and before we kind of get into the topic of biologics and orthobiologics specifically, can you tell us just a little bit about your practice? Yes. Yeah, so my practice has gone through an interesting kind of transformation. It's kind of mirrored the rise in clinical evidence for orthobiologics um, and really mirrored the rise of arthroscopy in orthopedic surgery. When I first started in 2000, I was primarily a shoulder and knee surgeon, and of the two, probably 80% shoulder, and came into Dallas and came into to the field at a time when arthroscopy was really just getting started. It was still relatively controversial to do an arthroscopic rotator cuff repair, and even more controversial to do an arthroscopic shoulder uh, stabilization procedure, where now those are relatively commonplace. And so from the very beginning of my career, in hindsight, I've always been kind of pushing the edge, you know, with, with a couple of good teachers behind me. Um, I started being interested in orthobiologics somewhere around 2008, 2009, 
And um, as the research has developed, I've, I've kind of kept my ear to the ground, knowing that biology was something that was going to be part of orthopedics because we don't need stronger metals. We don't need stronger sutures at this point. All the anchors are pretty much just different flavors. And, uh, and the biology is where we still have a chance um, as a specialty to make a huge impact in how things work and how people recover and uh, minimize their pain and dysfunction. So now my practice is really, um, I think the 50-50 mark was about four years ago, and now my practice is more regenerative medicine in terms of office-based uh, orthobiologic procedures um, compared to surgery. Surgery is actually less than 50%. Um, still busy in the wow. other, but 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 orthobiologics. I think it's a reflection, Omar, of the fact that there's so many people that won't even go see a doctor if they think the only answer is a joint replacement, or they think the only answer is a steroid shot. Even um, yeah, now that we know there's point. an option, these people are just coming out and telling their friends that hey, there's another option that's safe, it's it's cost effective, you know, and it's in the office. And so um, there's a lot of people out there that we would have never known were were, were needing or, or could be helped. Um, until we had an option for them. Yeah, that's and that's something to be said about the fact that you're a you're a surgeon and less than fifty percent of your uh, practice is focused on procedures. Mm -hmm. You know, um, yeah. when did you start seeing that trend really happening, where you started focusing more on regenerative medicine? It, um, it it's interesting. I, I didn't. It wasn't really a conscious effort on my part. Um, I do the same types of marketing that most of us do, and, and my marketing was always geared towards, hey, there's other options short of arthroplasty. If you've got a joint that hurts, um, let us at least give you an evaluation of your options. And it, I've always been one to try and educate patients and people in general with what I do, um, not to be the decision maker for them, but to say, here's all the data. Let me answer as many questions as I can. If I don't know, I'll find out. And then you tell me what makes sense for you and your family. Um, that really started to impact my practice makeup, uh, again, about five, six years ago, um, where the word of mouth, you know, if, if you take someone's chronic pain away or, or knock it down to where they can do things they could no longer do, they don't forget you, and they tell their friends about it, even more so than if you fix their shoulder, I think. <laughs> so, so, um, um, so it's kind of taken on an organic growth that was unexpected. I think it's a little bit different than like a normal surgical practice growth because there you're kind of counting on colleagues in the business and you're counting on referral patterns and things that, that um, you know, we, we've tended to lose the word of mouth referral, in my opinion, in the surgical side. But on the regenerative medicine side, that is, that is exponentially growing. Yeah, no, I, I, that, uh, that makes, makes a lot of sense too. Now, let's get into the most interesting topic, which is, you know, at some point as a surgeon, you know, and I don't want to spend too much time on this because I do want to get into like the juicier topics of the day. But like at some point as a surgeon, you, something struck you and you said, I'm going to go on LinkedIn and I'm going to put an effort. I'm going to spend some of my time, which is very precious, writing and educating people on LinkedIn. What exactly? Oh, and my uh, little makeshift uh, studio just fell apart. So sorry <laughs> about that. But I'll put it's that okay. up. That's gonna be that's gonna be a great clip in the, in, in this episode. Yeah, but yeah, so it, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so, but at what point in your in your in your practice do you say, hey, I'm gonna take to LinkedIn. I'm gonna start spending more time um, educating people. Um, it, it really, it, it really just came out of the way that I see my role in as someone's doc slash surgeon, and. I started to see people in the office that had been told such amazing, nonsensical, ridiculous things that didn't jive with basic, you know, high school level human biology that it was really frustrating. And when you combine that with the fact that I was being marketed, still get marketed to as a clinician to, 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 to believe a story that just doesn't make sense, um, even before you get to the regulatory issue, it just doesn't make biologic sense with no proof. Um, it just became very frustrating, and, and I'm not one to kind of walk away from, from that kind of frustration when I think that it's harmful to people. Um, and so LinkedIn was a place where I was um, comfortable, you know, connecting with colleagues, and, and it was a nice way to, 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 to correspond across distance. But it quickly, like you point out, quickly became a way to educate um, and, um, you, you know, I, right or wrong, I, I'm willing to 
put my name as most of us that care strongly in this field, willing to put our name behind what we say. You know, we're not hiding behind an email address that you can't trace or, or, a, or an LLC based in some country that you can't, you can't trace. So I, I thought it was really important for people to know that there are people in the field that are reputable, that, that value their reputations and that, that value their, their um, want to share what they've learned and what they've vetted, um, which, as you know, has required, has required not being afraid to say that things are bad if they're bad. Yeah, and what I admire is that, like, uh, what a lot of physicians usually end up doing is they try to educate using, uh, let's say, through their practice, mm -hmm. um, which is the wrong way to market, whether you're a company or anything else, because people really are interested in hearing from other people. And so you're mm -hmm. really the face of your practice and you become, you know, for me, I can speak for myself and numerous people I've spoken to because I ask them, like, do you know Don Beaver? Do you know Don Beaver? And everybody said, yeah, like that's that's like my go to source for uh, orthobiologics. I'm like, yeah, same here. And so, you know, I know in the last like couple of months, there's some really controversial, your posts weren't controversial, but they were calling out some very controversial practices. Like what kind of things come up that has made the world of biologics, uh, I guess, you know, dangerous, dangerous to patients because you're dealing with people who are in a lot of pain, you know, they're fed up with the healthcare uh, system. And even me, I'm kind of a good example of that. You know, my insurance couldn't cover uh, something recently. Mm -hmm. And so I said, you know what? I'm going to go and pay out of pocket myself and go to somebody. But fortunately for me, you know, having been to med school, father's a surgeon. So I know how to research these things. And I know when to see things mm -hmm. that are um, clinically valid yeah. versus things that are BS. So what were some things that kind of came up that because you hit hard this past few months and I people were loving it. Yeah. I mean, somebody needs to call these companies out. Well, you know, there, there was there was a, a change in the in the landscape in June, when the FDA finally said we're going to stop giving these companies slack that that are knowingly violating our regulations, and so that was a real positive step in June. Um, what's happened in 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 the publishing business, and it, it's interesting because, you know, one of the one of the criticisms is always you don't have any research. There's no publications. There's no papers. And, and now it's gone a step further where now some of the papers recently, which is what I think you're getting at, that have been published in, in journals as reputable as JAMA, you know, Journal of the American Medical Association, have published papers that on the face of it, if you just read a title or an abstract, which unfortunately many of us, that's all we do. Um, yep. The title says PRP was used for knee arthritis and the conclusion is it didn't work. And some people will take that and shake, you know, shake that around in the air and take that back. The sad thing is when it's decision makers at health insurance, you know, companies or decision makers at hospitals or decision makers, even in a practice that may have six docs and they, they make a decision based on a paper where if you actually dig into it a little bit, you can see that there's a lot of structural procedural problems, starting with the fact that in this one I'm thinking of, they didn't even really use the product they said that they were studying. And so here's a paper that says that they're studying platelet-rich plasma, but then you've got to either buy the paper or subscribe to the journal to get the actual chart that shows that they actually injected an average platelet count that was within normal human range. So that's it's not, not going to do anything. It's not. Yeah, it's not that's that's like platelet normal plasma. <laughs> what? Yeah, I'll tell you what. If that so that one of two things. If that had worked then I would have changed my practice and studied that and probably said, gosh, why am I doing PRP when I can just spin the blood and put in, you know, why do PRP at all? But what that does, to, to me, the benefit of a paper like that, which is one of the things I wrote, was this proves this paper proves conclusively that you should not do this. <laughs> it proves how bad it is if you don't do PRP right. And, um, and so that's something that, you know, people that have a vested interest and want to bring this to people that need it, I think need to be vocal about it because we don't want a couple of papers like that to even slide by at any point and, and get into the literature as, as, as not being challenged. And so it's not just me. There's many of us that will write letters to the editor. Every paper like that that's come out that I can think of in the past three or four years has had many people in the business that are thoughtful and really smart guys and girls that have written letters to the editor, taken people to task over their technique. Um, a lot of times it really comes down to, to quantifying what we're doing. And so it'd be like saying, it'd be like a paper on headaches where they don't tell you how many Tylenol they gave. They just say Tylenol didn't work. And so you, you, you have so many more questions than that. 
And there's no reason why our research in orthobiologics and in regenerative medicine should be any different. Um, we should be forced to quantify and, and identify what we're doing. Um, we can talk a little bit about conflicts of interest and why that may be happening in this field, which is a little bit harder to, to suppose. But um, uh, it's interesting. I just don't know how that gets passed an editorial board. I think partly because they don't have the same experience with this, uh, you know, with this field as they would with a different type of a subject. I think, you know, what's interesting about these journals, um, and I won't name any, but like, you know, the big journals that you and I talk about is that they're media companies just like everybody else. And so they're competing for dollars, both from advertisers and subscribers. Mm -hmm. And a part of this is it's, it's a long tail game, meaning that you need more content. And mm -hmm. so they're trying to, you know, look at, approve and publish more papers in which case these things go by because not it's, you know, it's almost like, um, I feel like it's, it's the same issues you get with prior authorizations, right? Like yeah. on the surface, it, it, it's like, it makes sense, right? Like mm -hmm. prior office, like, Oh, we need, you know, we can't, you know, so you need authorization for certain things. So we need another physician to authorize it, yeah. but you know, you can't, you're not going to get like, let's say an infinite amount of, let's say orthopedic surgeons on for, for, to help with prior authorization. So a lot of times, like I would bet like, eight out of 10 times or nine out of 10 times when you submit something for prior authorization and it gets rejected and you do a peer to peer, you're yeah. dealing with like a cardiologist or a pediatrician or something. Somebody who's like a few years out of fellowship and they're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And you have to spend all this time explaining to them like this new standard and why it needs to be authorized. And either, either you're good at negotiation and persuasion. They say, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah sure. Whatever. Or you're not. And then it gets escalated. And I think that's a big like sign of why healthcare is the way it is. So it's not surprising that even in things that supplement and inform healthcare, like a journal have these mm -hmm. same kind of issues. Is that, is that kind of off to say that way? No, I think you're right. I, I think, you know, responsible journalism, um, is obviously the goal. I think it gets hard when you don't have a vetted expert editorial board to review the subject matter, because then who do you, you know, who, who, who's making the decision? It's just like what you just said, the cardiologist making a decision about, you know, a spine surgery probably isn't appropriate. And most states, Texas included, are trying to stop that practice from happening. Why wouldn't we stop a journal from publishing an article on regenerative medicine that's vetted by somebody who, who has no experience, has not written any articles, hasn't done any research. Do you um, think do you think one of the problems is that again, this is this is not a popular opinion, but like I'm gonna say what a lot of people are thinking probably, which is if you're dealing with something that messes with someone else's money, mm -hmm. they're going to find a way to objectively reason, objectively and logically mm -hmm. reason as to why that thing is not a good idea. Because, like, it's very rare that somebody's going to say, oh, yeah, this other thing's better, even though this other thing is going to directly impact how much money I make. Yeah. It, um, you would like to not think so, but we're all human. And um, it is. Even it, doctors. <laughs> even doctors. It, it is what it is. And um, when you see some of these marketing campaigns where it says nothing about how well it works clinically because they don't have any studies. But it does say you can make $4,000 per two cc's, and that's the marketing campaign. They're clearly marketing to one aspect of human nature that has nothing to do with practicing medicine. Um, and so, you know, how the journal articles fit into that, hard to know. But, you know, a lot of research is funded by industry, you know, and nobody owns anybody else's blood, you know, not legally anyway. <laughs> um, yeah. And so, so the fact that I can do PRP with someone and w without really involving um, a specific drug and it's not patented and it's not on any, you know, people can come in whenever they want to do it, it, it is, is at some level probably threatening to some industries, especially when they may have a billion-dollar arthritis drug pipeline, you know, hoping to release a drug in a couple years that affects arthritis. If, if they can't show that it's better than PRP, they better get PRP to go away, you know, and make sure it's not covered. Um, I mean, look at what just happened with that uh, Alzheimer's medication. It's crazy expensive, right? If, 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 which uh, which one was that? Uh, the one that they just approved to be covered by Medicare, as I understand it. And I think the, the per person cost, if you get it for a year, is something like $50,000, something like that. Something, something extreme. 
to the point that they're worried about how that would impact our nation's, you know, economy, basically, or healthcare healthcare dollar. Um, the fact that they approve that, and we're asking them to approve PRP that costs 500 bucks, and probably, if you do the numbers, which some have done, probably every time you do PRP for someone, you're probably saving the insurance company thousands of dollars. Um, it's essentially preventing that patient from getting worse and going into something like, let's say, like a procedure, which involves right. like all kinds of overhead facility fees, implants. Right. I mean, just it's just it's a lot of money. Yeah. And it doesn't even have to you don't even have to say that you're eliminating joint replacement or, or surgery. If you're just delaying it, this, the cost savings is still significant, very significant. So is, would you say for most for most part, like. Could could these could this be looked at as preventative? Because maybe you know the, another argument is to say like, well, we wouldn't want to delay because if you delay it, the patient is older and there's higher risk, right? Could you say? Yeah. Could you make an argument? Could somebody make an argument like that or no? I, th I think we're getting there. I, I think there are some studies that are very well done. One of them's done by um, kind of a, a, a the, the godfather of this, Philippe Pernigal out of France, who's got who's got serial um, patient data and X-rays showing no progression of arthritis from some of these treatments. And he primarily is using bone marrow concentrate. And so we don't have enough, in my opinion, for me to, to counsel someone that, that we are preventative. I do think it's fair to say, hey, there's been several studies that have shown that, you know, on a, on a reasonable BMC protocol every three years, five years, you know, whatever the number is that you, you get out of the literature, that, that we can probably get you down the road a long stretch of time, decade or more, and your x-rays may not change. So I think the key is trying to catch those people early enough where they don't have end-stage bone on, you know, what we call bone-on-bone -bone arthritis. Um, but I think ultimately the data will show that if we catch someone early when they start having symptoms and treat them with the biologic that we have some evidence is, is, is uh, something that slows the breakdown of cartilage enough, that it will be essentially, in essence, preventative. Got it. I want to shift gears just a bit. You you recently had a um, you had a post about uh, I think placenta based stem cell. Mm -hmm. Do you know you you remember what I'm what I'm speaking about? Can you tell us a little bit a little bit about that? Because that seemed like yes. a very interesting topic. And again, another area where like really um, unethical marketing practices were used on, on patients. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, um, you know, in, in broad categories, what I tell patients at this point is if the stem cells don't come from your own body, you should at this point just walk away. Because for sure in the United States, it's not legitimate. Um, I and many colleagues from West Coast all the way to East Coast, northern part of the country down to the southern, looked at dozens, literally dozens of these allograft birth tissue product um, stem cell injections and stem cells is in big quotes because there were no stem cells. And hmm. um, they came from multiple different manufacturers. A lot of them were just separately labeled, but they came from the same factory. Um, some of them hurt a lot of people like the Livion product, put people in the hospital um, at, at risk for their lives. And, How did it put uh, them in the hospital? Like, was it uh, clot related? Well, they, had, they, they were distributing infected products. And so people were getting injections that were con contaminated with, with, with Enterobacter, E. coli, and, and getting septic. Um, and, and, and that septic, you know, episode is getting out of the joint that they're injected and infecting them systemically and putting them at risk. And, um, y you know, so, so this allograft birth tissue market, you know, if you think about it conceptually, I get it. I totally get it. I would love not to have to draw blood and be able to draw one cc out of a bottle and have somebody do great for a year. I don't know, whether you call it stem cell or not, it doesn't matter. I would love for that to exist. It does not exist right now, and it never has. And so what they capitalized on was the stem cell name, because that was sexy, um, because there's research that's been done on, on stem cells from placenta, and you know all of us that have had kids have been you know handed brochures in the delivery room about you know storing the cord. Um, but, but the issue is it, it defies human biology because their marketing plan was to freeze that, to ship it to a doctor's office frozen, and in every single product we studied, the instructions to thaw said either just roll it in your hands for five minutes or put it in a warm bath for five to 15 minutes. 
And anybody that spends any time in a biology lab knows that doing that is not going to give you any significant living cells, even if there were living mm -hmm. cells. And so yeah. that's just not the way that you wake cells up that have been frozen. And so, so people that were smarter than me, PhD types, said, look, this, this doesn't make any sense at all. You need to look at this. Um, the, the easiest thing of all to do is just to put it on a slide and look at it under the microscope, and it even failed that test. This is a product that's supposed to have 2 to 20 million, depending on which company, stem cells per cc, and you put it on a slide, you'd expect to see a couple, and you literally see zero. So in, in multiple published peer-reviewed um, articles on this topic, there were essentially no, no functional stem cells found in any of those products. And people were being charged 5000 6000 7000 And all cash-based, right? All cash pay. And because there's no law against it, it was being done by people across any specialty. How is it? Yeah, and this is the crazy thing is that when there's cash-based procedures that come out, like it's so mm -hmm. strange, so, so many like random physicians, like I'm not opposed to it, but it has mm -hmm. to make sense, you mm -hmm. know? But like, for, how is there not a law against this kind of stuff? Well, there should be. And and the problem is it's not, you know, it's not an identified subspecialty. It's not a specialty under the uh, American Medical Boards. Um, maybe one day it will be, maybe not. But I think most of us would agree that, at least for orthobiologics, where you're talking about orthopedics, you, you, you ought to see someone that's in an orthopedic musculoskeletal specialty, whether it's orthopedic surgery, you know, physiatry, pain management, even family practice sports, you know, I'm not trying to leave anyone out on purpose, but somebody that's spent some time and knows how to do a proper H&P and diagnosis, because none of this works if you miss the H&P. Um, so, but the lack of legal oversight is just a hole in our medical system where, you know, once you get an MD, you can almost do anything you want. <laughs> um, yeah. And then not to mention the chiropractors, you know, I mean, their business model to hire the nurses to do the injections is one that they, they, they blatantly advertise, make more money, add stem cell injections, you know? Yeah. And it's really bad too. Cause like, um, you know, I think there's a lot of, uh, for example, on the chiropractors, like, you know, there are good chiropractors out there, but then mm -hmm. there's a lot of like really bad ones. They're mm -hmm. doing like all kinds of stuff like this just mm -hmm. to like, you know, make a lot. And I think that they, they, they don't get as much oversight as MDs because they're not always billing for insurance. So, like mo the moment you go cash pay, it's just like, you can do whatever you want. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, I've got some good friends that are chiropractors. We, we've got in the organization that, that I'm currently the president of, we, we have um, a chiropractor that's on our board who's, who's thoughtful and evidence-based and outstanding clinician. So it, it's not the degree. It's it's that their practices, like you said, are set up to be cash-based. And um, I, I think they saw it as low-hanging fruit because they didn't, there was no invasive procedure. You're just drawing something out of a bottle and injecting it. And that's, that apparently attracted people that, that, you know, could be swayed by that argument. See, this just makes no sense to me. Is that like physician or not as, as a clinician, the moment you're pulling something out, if you're putting something foreign to somebody else's body, it's like, it like me, again, I'm, I don't have my own practice, but I would be kind of freaked out and say, you know, I really got to like, read the literature on this check to see what the what this is like the whatever whatever governing body or society says about these things talk to some other people etc like to really make sure it's about and i'm sure you know what i'm sure these people do that but just like any other human being once you're bought into something you you're now you're now uh you fall you fall fall uh victim to confirmation bias and so everything yes. that you're looking at is just confirming a bias that you have it's not it's not really yeah. doing any kind of legitimate vetting of the procedure yeah you're exactly right and uh you know most of us come through training tending to believe our sales reps and 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 regenerative medicine was a real big eye-opening example of why you can't always do that um but you're, 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 you're exactly right. The, the confirmation bias that existed was self-perpetuating until the FDA finally said, you know, fortunately, it was like kind of a regulatory thing that shut it down. Um, but for me, you know, the basic things in whatever order you want to put them, you better be able to show safety and you better be able to show regulatory, you know, that it's appropriate and legal. Um, and then you better be able to show clinical efficacy, that it, that it, that it works better than the alternative. And so... It failed on all three points. Those allograft orthobiologics failed on all three points. No clinical efficacy, was regulatory, noncompliant, 
and there was no safety data. So for me, it was a non-starter times three, three strikes. And this thing, uh, you know, this specific company or this this uh, treatment, it's it's still being used today, correct? Sadly, there are still places that will happily sell you that. Yeah. And there's nothing. So on a, just just to put this in perspective, on a scale of zero to Theranos, uh, zero to 10, 10 being a Theranos, like how bad is this? Um, it was worse until June. It's gotten a lot better. What, what we still see now is there are still a couple people holding on to that ledge with both fingernails trying to, in my opinion, milk whatever they can out of this last batch they have in the closet because they're saying that it's covered by Medicare. There's companies still making that claim that these products are covered by Medicare. And, and they're therefore, not. No. What's happened is they did an end around and got a Medicare number, basically, without getting too much into it, a Q code. But the mm -hmm. problem is Medicare is not the company, not the entity that regulates drugs. The FDA is. And yeah, and FDA, I was going to say, let alone reg regenerative medicine. <laughs> right. So the FDA has said and continues to say and reaffirmed it in June and continues to reaffirm it as recently as two weeks ago in another letter to another company that these are not approved for any indication. And so the fact that this company just submitted stuff to the CMS people to get a Q code for billing, Q codes have no basis on regulatory appropriate, you know, use. And so um, I think what we're going to see, we'll do a podcast about six months from now, and this starts to really hit the fan, but there's going to be a massive financial clawback against people that have billed Medicare using these Q codes for products that were never regulatory compliant. I mean, millions and millions, maybe even with a B. Um, so we'll mm. see. Well, um, I'm, I'm going to wait to see it. But when it does, like you'll come to mind right away, which is every I feel like every month or two, like Becker's come out, comes out with an update. It's like these yeah. group of doctors going. And it's, it's always around Medicare fraud for some reason. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know why yeah. that is there a specific reason? Like, why is it always Medicare fraud? Is it just because like that's that's the easier one to get to just, you know, why Medicare fraud? It is the easier one to get. And as a regulator, um, I think access to that data might be a little bit easier. But, you know, so, for example, a Q code, like let's just say it's Q4206. That's such an easy database query into the Medicare computer to spit out every payment on that code. And now you've got your list of people to just go knock on doors and make a name for yourself getting that money back. And the Medicare contractors... Um, that who are tasked with doing that, doing these audits, you know, they never lose because they get paid based on successful audits. So if they get on someone's tail, they're going to take that to completion and get that money back. And then that's how they stay in business. And so, you know, you've basically got a built in uh, police force there. Um, I think the other place where it's happening is in, in um, there's some district attorneys um, that hmm. are relatively aggressively going after some of these clinics, both on advertising grounds and on, charging people cash and there's some of them are being very creative in how they're how they're charging people I, there was one in california i believe that charged someone based on um elder abuse because the way the law hmm. was written you know there's somebody who's over 65 and you willingly knowingly cause them financial harm um and so there's creative ways to do it the private sector tends to be more responsive but i think with medicare with these audit contractors you have to be careful if i had been doing that consistently for years I would be very worried now. And, and there's amnesty programs that they can actually take advantage of to try and minimize the fines. Because, you know, the fines get tripled and sometimes even more than tripled. And uh, it's a bankrupting type of number you usually get hit with. Interesting. You know, for patients, you know, uh, like, for example, myself, I mean, I had, you know, I do jujitsu. Like, I had a little, I think I tweaked my shoulder. Probably not from jujitsu. Actually, it was doing some stupid uh, interval training stuff. But, mm -hmm. you know, it's it's still tweaks. So I, was, I was like, you know, I should like look into PRP and stuff. But like, where does a patient start? Like, where where do you direct patients to get the best information? Because, you know, I don't mm -hmm. know if I have a Dom Buford here in SoCal. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, but like, where would I where where would a patient go get their information to make sure that they that the patient has the right information to vet these clinics out and not be, mm -hmm. you know, taken advantage of? Yeah, I. I... I feel for the general public that's trying to get good information, it, it's getting better. I think you start just with the Internet, starting with, you know, let's just say I'm, I'm in Dallas. I, I Google Dallas PRP providers and see who comes up, um, maybe ignoring the ads, which I 
will make Google mad at me, but but going to the actual organic results where the people that have, that have the most reviews and the most positive reviews pop up. And I, I would see. just make a short list and call four or five of them. Um, there's a few questions, you know, what's the doc? If you can find out from the website, that's great. If you can't find out enough about the doctor from their webpage, that's a red flag in my opinion. A lot of these websites that are shady don't even list the provider. Or if they list the yeah. provider, don't list any information, that's a big red flag. I mean, if you go to our website, it says who I am, what I've done, you know, Your why training I did, and everything. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if you can't validate and verify some of that info from the website, you should at least be suspicious. Um, but then asking questions um, as much as you can get on the phone or, or you know, through or email or what have you. But then ultimately, I would want to see somebody, again, who's trained in the in musculoskeletal discipline, who has experience, um, ideally who may be published, but you don't have to be published. Um, and, and if possible, you know, knowing what I know, I, I would look them up on, on Facebook and on really on LinkedIn and, and see and look them up on health grades and try and get as many different you know, separate avenues of, of evaluation as possible. Because if someone's got good Google reviews, good health grades re reviews, which is not linked to Google, you go to Facebook and, and you know, they, they, they seem to be thoughtful. You go to LinkedIn and, and they've got, you know, 3,000 followers and, and, and they're active talking about regenerative. You know, I would be a little more comfortable seeing that person than somebody who has none of that and who's a urologist. <laughs> And yeah, you know, yeah you're and, right. No MSK experience, and 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 who I can't find anything else out about. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And you know, I think you know for certain things it's okay, just because you know uh, physicians are are small business owners, so you you know your practice is going to change, right? But mm -hmm. it, it has to make sense. So like you mm -hmm. know, my father, my father trained in general surgery, general mm -hmm. surgeon of uh, you know he he did general surgery for over 30 years, but at some mm -hmm. point he started doing more varicose veins procedures. He's not a vascular surgeon, mm -hmm. but you know, after getting trained on it, you know, mm -hmm. doing, doing a lot of courses and everything, you know, starting to do more cases, he converted mm -hmm. his practice to be just a vein clinic focused on mm -hmm. it. That makes mm -hmm. sense. Mm -hmm. But there are other things like, uh, you know, I don't know, psychiatrists doing like Botox injections, like that stuff mm -hmm. just doesn't make sense to me. And it's mm -hmm. kind of like, it's one thing if you change your practice, you're like, I'm going to special, I'm going to focus on this. Mm -hmm. And it's another thing to be like, oh, like, look at all these sort of random cash-based things. Like I have mm -hmm. like a, you know, like a candy store, random things. You can, you can do right. this, you can do that. And it just never make, made sense to me. And especially, I think the more invasive something is, the more important is that the physician's training is close to that because like, mm -hmm. okay, someone could argue, it's like, yeah, you're just placing some injections. Like, yeah, but also when you do the HMP and evaluation of the patient, you need, mm -hmm. you need musculoskeletal training to know what the hell you're doing. Like, it doesn't right. matter how great you are. Like, you yeah. can't, you know, you need that training because there's something that there might be something very subtle in that, in that, uh, um, in that pr uh, presentation mm -hmm. that you catch. And then you say, this patient's actually not a good candidate for PRP. They actually need surgery or they need something else. Yeah. Right. It's, Versus like... A random physician is going to be like, hey, yeah, like, just sit up here. Like, let's just inject you and get on with it. Yeah, no, and that, that's, that's the danger when the procedure is made super easy where you just draw something out of a bottle. <laughs> um, maybe, because, that's, maybe that's where this bad behavior comes from is that if yeah. – I bet you, you know what, we, we should put this on a graph. Mm -hmm. The easier the procedure is to do and the more mm -hmm. cash is paid mm -hmm. out, you're mm -hmm. going to end up with bad behavior. I think that's, yeah. a, good, I think that's a good heuristic. Yeah, yeah, and you're going to see with that procedure, you're going to have more specialties involved. You mentioned you mentioned psychiatry, which made me laugh because there was a psychiatrist in in the San Fernando Valley who was a regenerative medicine expert. You know, are you kidding? You got to be kidding me! No, no. And, and the only thing that a lot of those clinics <laughs> have in common, the only thing a lot of those clinics have in common, is all their procedures are cash pay. Across, you know, if they have a new cash pay procedure, they add it. So, um, but yeah, you're 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 right. It, it's it's you know, a cash, cash attracts people that like cash. And, and they're not always people that have taken the Hippocratic Oath and people that are ethical, <clears throat> unfortunately. Um, but I think that's changed for the better. And it's continuing to move in a direction like a true scientific discipline should. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And I think the, the exciting thing, and maybe um, I think COVID, COVID did a lot of things like in terms of accelerating trends that were already there. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, and maybe because I'm exposed to it a little bit more because I'm in SoCal, I think mm -hmm. this, um, 
area of medicine, uh, when it comes to like regenerative medicine, longevity, I think more and more people are getting interested in that, you know, myself included, where people are more interested to spend cash up front Mm -hmm. um, to do these kind of things that are going to like extend longevity, improve things, regenerate things versus kind of going through the traditional healthcare system and you end up paying the more or less like the same amount, you know, mm-hmm. and, and things mm-hmm. that just end up being a lot worse. So I think there's a lot of, a lot of really exciting things in this space, but again, like when it's cash based, like there's a lot of like bad players involved. And, you know, as long as there's uh, people like you calling these people out, like by name company and individual in public, like, I mean, I love it. And I think that's what, I think that's what needs to happen. I yeah. think that's what needs to happen. Uh, you know, I think it's a conversation we have to have if, and most of the time, I'm just asking for explanation. Like, hey, this doesn't make any sense to me. And if I'm ignorant, my apologies. And, it, it, you know, educate me on it. Because um, I am not one to claim I know everything about everything. There's way too much to know. But but there are some things, as you know, that justify common sense that deserve to be held up to the light of day. <laughs> don't 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 go to a psychiatrist for PRP, guys. Just don't. Just unless, don't unless like you, you said, unless, like you said, unless they can show that they've They've shadowed somebody. They, they've gone through the IOF. IOF's the interventional orthobiologist. They've gone through the IOF curriculum. You know, they, they, show some, they show some change that makes sense that you can track. Then maybe, but, but, but you're right. It, it, it's got to be logical. Yeah, no, it, 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 it really does. It really does. Well, Dr. Beaver, you know, we won't be mindful of your time, but as we, as we wrap up, we just do this kind of fun, quick, rapid-fire question. We've got a couple of questions for you. You can answer them as quickly as you want. Um, but it's mm-hmm. kind of a fun way to kind of wrap up the show. And again, thank you so much for coming on, sharing your knowledge. I definitely, you're going to be my uh, go-to orthobiologics uh, correspondent. So I'm looking forward to having you back because I think once 22, 2022 rolls around, we're going to see some really big <laughs> stories in the news. So we're going to definitely want to have you yeah. have you back for updates. Uh, but yeah, for, so first rapid fire question for you. So during, ter- during the pandemic, uh, we bought a lot of interesting stuff for ourselves, books, gadgets, et cetera. And I had to adjust the price on this. I used to say hundred bucks, but some people yeah. got the things that are over it. But what's something yeah. that is less than two hundred bucks that mm-hmm. you bought during the pandemic that that you love? It could be a book, it could be a gadget. What's something interesting you bought? Well, you know, I'm a I'm a gadget guy. I, I am I am a hardcore gadget guy. Um, so it's going to have to be a gadget. Um, and, and sadly, sadly, it's probably this microphone I'm talking to you on. <laughs> I got the the nicest Yeti, which is probably oh nice more. yeah yeah. But so so I love that and and um, um, you know like most of us we're, when the gym's closed, I had to outfit my house so I didn't get to be up north of three hundred pounds. So I've got some toys up there that I bought that uh, that uh, allow me to stay home and work out too. And so those between the 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 stuff for the zooming and and this yeah. I'm right there with you. I mean, I used to go to the gym uh, all the time, and then my wife went to her own gym during the pandemic. We, you know, we started with a couple of kettlebells. Six yeah. months into it, we were we really loved like working out together. Yeah, I got a whole garage gym, squat rack, everything, and it, it makes I'm never going back because now right. every day I work out, even if it's just going and like picking yeah. some stuff up for like ten minutes. Yeah. Like I'm jacked right now. I've gotten in such such immaculate shape. So so like garage gym, such a well, such a great investment. Well, you know, yeah. you look down at that, you look down at your Apple Watch and that red ring. You only got to get another little fifty calories. You got to figure out what to do. <laughs> yeah, ex- that's exactly right. And then when it's right there, there's no excuses. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so a cu- couple more questions for you, Zen. Um, so part of medicine, continuing education is a big part of medicine. Mm-hmm. But the one thing I love about the culture of medicine is that it goes beyond just the art of medicine and science goes to other things. What's a book that you've read in the last year or so that you feel like you've recommended and gifted most often to people? Oh, wow. So, so I tend to escape on my long drives into the office, into, into things that aren't medical, if that counts. Per, oh, um, no, no, that's a hundred percent. That's exactly what I was looking for. Okay. Yes. So, so, um, and, and because I respect so many of my colleagues that have served in the military, I listen to a lot of, a lot of um, um, books along those lines, you mm-hmm. know, with, with uh, uh, you know, the Vince Flynn authors and the, the, the people that you would recognize. 
Um, and so that, that helps just take my mind completely, you know, kind of clear the decks and allow me to disappear into a, a, what for me is a fantasy world. Um, and I try and, you know, I've got a couple partners in the office where we talk about the latest thing that we're listening to or reading, and it's usually along those lines, yeah. Nice. Fantastic. Fantastic. All right. So the last question for you is, um, I want you to pretend that I'm going to take a billboard out for the next year. Mm-hmm. And this billboard is going to go in front of every single doctor's office throughout the country that does biologics. Okay. Mm-hmm. They're going to see this message. What message do you put on that billboard? Mm. Wow. That's a great question. Um, it's got to be, it's got to be um it's got to be almost a motto or a credo if that makes sense something along the lines of you know you need to thoughtfully do you need to be thoughtful when you're doing orthobiologics and so it it, it um yeah gosh how do i word it evidence-based orthobiologics um Oh gosh, I'd have to think about. It. I'm going to have an answer for you. <laughs> um, we'll, we'll hold you to it. I'll look for it on LinkedIn. Who knows? This question might just it's might just created your new tagline. That's it. We'll we'll, we'll, we'll set up as much as I, I I struggle with LinkedIn polls. We'll set up a poll. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, set up a poll. I, I, I'm looking forward to seeing it. Awesome. Well, Dr. Buford, stay on for a few minutes. We'll we'll, we'll chat real quick. But hey, everyone. Okay. Don Buford, MD, please make sure to follow him on LinkedIn. I'm going to drop some uh, links below in the notes. That way you can follow him, check out his practice. I'm Omar Tim, your host and head of state at the state of MedTech, and we'll see you all next time. Bye for now. Hold on one sec. Thank you for listening to another episode of The State of MedTech. I'm your host, Omar M. Khatib. Do us a favor. If you like this episode, share with somebody and go ahead on Apple and Spotify, wherever you are, leave a five-star review. Type a few nice notes about us. This is how we get other people to find the show. Thank you. and We'll see you next time.